and we will, I'm going to review a little bit from the end of uh, the last section of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, and then uh, move on into chapter 4. Um, all of 2 Timothy is amazing, so personal, so emotional. We learn so much biographically about Paul from 2 Timothy, um, particularly, particularly when we head into chapter 4. We're going to learn a lot. But uh, I want to back up and pick up. I know Clark talked about it with you at the end of chapter 3. Uh, let me just quickly kind of read over the last paragraph of chapter 3 because there's a couple remarks I want to make in order to set us up for chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. But look at chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. Um, we're, going, we're, we're going to, in chapter 4, finish up the charge that Paul is giving to Timothy that started in verse 6 of chapter 1. This whole book is a charge to young Timothy um, to step up to the plate because Paul is anticipating his death. Um, and um, uh, particularly here in this climactic part of it, but at verse 9 of chapter 4, Paul just gets into some final personal remarks. But the charge to Timothy will end um, really at, at verse 8 of chapter 4. But to set the stage for the beginning of the end of the charge, let me just read back over uh, the last paragraph of what we find in chapter 3 and then move on into chapter 4. Because he says something that I, I really like to talk about uh, with, <clears throat> with us modern Christians in the United States. He says something real important here in chapter 3. Look at verse 10. You, Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, and he could add other places. And you can read about those events in the book of Acts. Uh, he summarizes by saying, which persecutions I endured. Uh, he's using his life um, as an example to encourage, to encourage Timothy. Again, we've talked about throughout the book of 2 Timothy the importance of mentoring and all of us in this room have been in the faith long enough, uh, we should be well adept at mentoring other people. I hope you've got one or two, and that's probably about the best any of us can do, one or two people in your life that you are mentoring in the faith, that you're pouring into. You are further ahead on the journey than they are. Uh, you're mentoring those people in the faith that um, are going to pick up the baton from, from our generation your generation, um, and, and, and keep, keep, keep fighting the fight, running the race. Uh, so Paul has given us wonderful examples here about how to mentor someone. He's mentoring Timothy. So he's using his life. He's reminding Timothy of what he's gone through. He, Paul has gone through. Um, he's talking particularly about some of his persecutions. Then notice verse 12. Um, people seem to be shocked when this happens. But it was prophesied. It was promised to us. This is one of the biblical promises we like to ignore. Look at verse 12, chapter 3 from Paul. He says to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you're not getting some grief from some people 
over your faith, you're probably not living it fervently enough. We should live our faith in such a way that we irritate some people. You know, when Jesus said, love your enemies, he was making an assumption, which is what? You'll have some. You know, we are known both by our friends and by our, quote, enemies. There should be people that the way you live, the things you stand for, rub them wrong. You know, we have to keep reminding modern Christians here in the United States, not to do it around the world, but in the United States, we, we think that Jesus lived and died just to make us really nice people. And I, I like being nice people, but that's not what we're aiming at primarily. You know, our witness should be such that, um, uh, that we both win people for Christ. And, um, you know, Jesus said he came to divide the world, whether we... By, by our witness, will will be liked by some people and disliked by others. So again, there's a promise from the Bible: all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So um, I, I hope that we're living in such a way. Um, it's not fun, but I hope we're living in such a way uh, that the enemy of our souls has a target on us. He would love to take us out. Um, we need to be a threat to the kingdom of darkness. And if we're a threat to the kingdom of darkness, um, yeah, we'll be given a little grief from some people. So there's one of Paul's promises. Um, we will be persecuted. Verse 13, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned. Again, keep noticing how often Paul talks about teaching doctrine, what you have learned. You know, a lot of people want just enough of the Christian faith to bring them a little comfort. But we need enough of the Christian faith to, to radically change us. We should be constantly learning and growing in the Christian faith. And again, Paul's talking to Timothy about that. And I want you to notice what he's going to get into now now that he's mentioned learning and growing, but as for you, continue in what you've learned, verse 14, and have firmly believed, firmly believed, not just somewhat believed, but firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And he's already talked about, you know, the mother and the grandmother of Timothy and others. So uh, again, we need to be mentoring. The people we mentor hopefully will remember us how we poured into their lives. So, so he says, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Um, I'm so grateful I was raised in Sunday school and I was raised with parents that saw that I was raised in Sunday school. Um, so I was raised around the sacred writings um, it concerns me that we're not passing on the faith to the youngest among us as well as I think uh, our, our forebears did. But, um, you know, individually we need to be working on that with the people who are coming behind us. Uh, I'm grateful that I was raised in such a way that the sacred writings uh, early on became very, very important to me in my study, in my office here. I've got a copy of the old Bible story book. 
uh, that, I, that, that was printed in 1967 when I was six years old. And it was the old Bible story book. That, uh, and it was really the pictures in it uh, that helped me fall in love with the stories of the scriptures. Um, yeah, I hope, I hope people in your life know how much you are in love with the sacred writings, how, much you, how well acquainted you are with the sacred writings. And of course, for Paul, he's talking about the Old Testament. That's the only sacred writings they would have known. Uh, he and others were in the process of writing the New Testament. Um, and it is interesting, uh, but by the time you finish the New Testament documents, they're beginning to refer to each other's writings as Scripture. But usually in the New Testament, anytime the New Testament community, anytime those Jews uh, mention sacred writings, they are mentioning the Old Testament, which again, that's why part of my charge in life is to help Christians remember that three quarters of their Bible is Old Testament. And you need to know that, that as well as you know New Testament. Those are the sacred writings uh, in which Timothy was raised, brought up. Those are the sacred writings that Paul's referring to. Those were the sacred writings that the early Christians used to preach Jesus from. Um, notice, so he says, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise. Wise, not just so you can win Jeopardy, but wise for salvation. That's what we're aiming at here, is salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. By the time Paul's writing, uh, when he's talking about, he's going to say it in, in a few moments, when he's talking about studying the Word, he means both the sacred writings, the Old Testament, and he means the gospel that they in the apostolic community are sharing about Christ, the Word, the teaching about Christ. So again, what we're aiming at by studying the sacred writings, the Old Testament, the gospel, is so that we can be wise in salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Um, verse 16, um, Clark enjoyed talking to you about it, and I want to say a word about verse 16, uh, because um, this is an issue. This is an issue in contemporary, in contemporary historic American churches. Uh, there's a great, great renewal movement going on among historic churches right now in the United States and somewhat in Europe. Every time God has ever renewed his body, every time the Christian community has ever been renewed, reformed, refreshed, revived throughout history, and it, is, it happens periodically because human nature being what it is, uh, we are in constant need of reforming according to the Word of God. Every time we've been renewed in Christian history, it's been because of a um, recapturing of the sense of the importance of Scripture. Whether it's the Protestant Reformation, whether it's um, uh, the Wesleyan Revival, whether it's some of the great movements before the Protestant Reformation that gave rise to the Franciscan order among Catholics, to the Benedictine order among Catholics, to the Jesuit order among Catholics. We quit making orders and started making denominations when we Protestants came along. But every time we have experienced renewal movements, um, you, can, you can bank on two things. Those renewal movements are based on a rediscovery of Scripture, and new groups are formed as a result of the rediscovery of Scripture. Um, historic Christians in America, and I'm using that term instead of mainline Christians in America, 
you know, we Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, whatever types, used to call ourselves mainline Christians. We've got to stop doing that. We're old line. We're almost off the line, as a matter of fact. Uh, so I prefer the word just historic Christians. Um, part of what's happening in the uh, historic churches is um, uh, there's some renewal movements going on, and almost all, all of them involve a rediscovery of Scripture, because a lot of our people in Western Europe and the United States and Canada um, have forgotten what a lot of people in Africa and Asia and some of the newer places where the gospel has gone have learned. Uh, we, have, we knew it. We, we shared it with them, and now we've forgotten it. But we've forgotten, for instance, verse 16. All scriptures breathed out by God. Paul invents a word right here. Brand new word. In the Greek language. Uh, it gets used after this. It was not used anywhere as far as we can tell before this. Uh, where Paul says all scripture is breathed out. Breathed out or all scripture is God breathed. Uh, he created a, a sort of compound Greek word, uh, theonustro, uh, God breathed. He created that word, a compound word in the Greek. Uh, he created that word to, to, to define the nature of Scripture. And again, for him, it's Old Testament, and we're in the process in the New Testament of the writings of the New Testament being included in what we call Scripture. And he says all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is breathed out by God. You know, Paul may be the writer of Second Timothy, but we believe that God is the author of Second Timothy. Using, using Paul as the writer, as the instrument. But God is the author. Uh, all scripture is breathed out by God. Um, this book is not like other books. These collections of documents are not like other collections of documents. Um, when Christians find fullness of life in Christ, it usually has a lot to do with a rediscovery of a passionate love for scripture. And, you know, you want to spend as much time in Scripture, well, you want to spend more time in Scripture uh, than you do in any other type of media, whatever that media may be. Um, that's why I'm so grateful for groups like you. I'm so grateful for groups like you that um, um, uh, evidence a passion for Scripture, evidence a passion for Scripture study. Um, I'm, and personally, you give me opportunities to do what I'm doing right now. Um, you know, um, is, is, is um, to be able to share Scripture is, is um, central to who I am, obviously, um, and is central to the Christian community. It was central to who Paul is. Um, you remember in the book of Acts, elders, um, that's where you have in the book of Acts, you have the division between elders and deacons. Deacons were created so that elders... I'm an elder, so that elders, those who are ordained elder, can do something very specific. Book of Acts tells us uh, deacons were created so that the elders could give themselves to a very specific task, to prayer and the preaching of the Word. You know, all of us do a whole lot of other things. Uh, and, and, and United Methodist Book of Discipline my job description, I think, is like 16 pages long, literally. You know, we're called to do a whole lot of things. CEO, counselor, 
The list goes on and on and on. So we have to keep reminding ourselves our primary task as an elder is to be committed to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And that's why elders, that's why deacons were developed in the book of Acts, to make sure that um, elders can give significant time, primacy, uh, to prayer and the preaching of the Word. They, they go together. Because, again, the preaching of the Word, the Word is God-breathed Scripture. Um, you know, I, I'm a fan of Paul. Paul is right. You know, you, you, you have to be specific about what you preach, He's going to say a little more about this to Timothy. But anyway, he, he defines Scripture. He gives the nature of Scripture here. Um, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And then here's the purpose of Scripture. And profitable for teaching. Uh, some people don't want to learn. For reproof. A lot of people don't like to be reproved. For correction. We really hate to be corrected. And for training in righteousness. Um. One of my contemporary heroes is Timothy Keller. Um, pray for Timothy Keller. He's a great preacher, theologian of the modern era. He's, he's been battling cancer for several years. He's the one who founded Redeemer Presbyterian Church right off of um, Times Square. And if you can create a thriving church off Times Square, uh, you're, you're a faithful follower of Christ. But Timothy Keller is battling cancer now. But he's, he's been a prolific, tremendous author um, of the presenting the Christian faith in the last generation. One of the things Timothy Keller said, and you know, and it's not unique to Timothy Keller, you know, none of us say anything unique or new or novel. If we say anything unique or new or novel, that's heresy. So beware of that. If you have a preacher saying something unique or new or novel, uh, we say the old story perhaps in new fresh ways, but we, we say the old stuff. But anyway, Timothy Keller said what many of Many of us have said over the years in one form or another, we don't sit in judgment on Scripture. Scripture sits in judgment on us. Um, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of Christians in, in our world today that would love for the Scripture to quit messing with their lives and to get out of the way of what they want. Um, you just can't do that to the Christian faith. We've tried for a couple thousand years, and every time we keep trying that, you know, God does bring renewal, revival, re reformation, uh, and it's always got to do with a re rediscovery of the importance of the Word of God. Anyway, Scripture's God-breathed. That's why we give so much attention to Scripture. Um, you see the purpose for it, and then in verse 17, you see the goal of Scripture study, that every man, every woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, keep in mind... When Paul wrote these letters, there was not a big number four in what he wrote. We put these chapter-verse divisions, um, we put these in a thousand years after these letters were written. And they're, they're convenient. They help us find our way around Scripture. But Paul, would just, Paul just kept writing, and the people would just keep reading. So, um, you know, it looks like you're going to a new topic in chapter 4, verse 1, but you're not. Paul's continuing what he's saying to Timothy. So notice, now that he's kind of called Timothy back to the sacred Scriptures, reminded Timothy what the Scriptures are. They're, they're God-breathed documents. He says... Verse 1, chapter 4, I charge you, and that's what he's been doing since chapter 1, verse 6, charging Timothy. Uh, Timothy's to take over, most of us think, Timothy's to take over the leadership of the early Christian community after Paul dies. 
And that's why, that's why he, he, Paul, is calling Timothy from Ephesus to Rome um, to sort of get his marching orders. And Paul is giving him some of those marching orders here in this letter that he's written to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. He wants Timothy and us to always remember we're always in the presence of God. You know, my mama might not have seen what I did, but God saw what I did. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And again, in the New Testament, it's amazing how closely connected God and Christ is. Uh, They're almost mentioned in the same breath, which is phenomenal for Jews to do. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge. We don't like that word either much in contemporary culture, who is to judge. And by the way, you know, I get really tired of, I mean, you know, some of con- some contemporary Americans, if they know one verse of Scripture, it may be, thou shalt not judge. Um, I wish I'd read the rest of the verse um, and keep reading, by the way. But you notice we're never told to not judge. You have to judge all day long. You know, when I stop at a red light or when I go at a green light, I'm making a judgment that you're going to stop at your red light. You know, we, you're, you're right now you've passed judgment on that chair you're sitting in, and you're assuming it's going to hold you up. So we have to make judgments all day long. You know, that's just, we, we make thousands of judgments all day long. So, you know, the Bible never says don't judge. What Jesus says in, in Matthew 7, when he says, judge not lest you be judged, the next verse he says, judge with the same measure with which you want to be judged. So we're not told to not judge. We're told to just judge others with the same mercy that we wish them to judge us. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes we judge others with no mercy, and we want God and everybody else to grant us a lot of mercy. So we don't, we're, we're never called to not judge. We have to pass value judgments all day long. Uh, otherwise, we'd never be able to say what's right or wrong for ourselves or anybody else. So we have to be able to pass value judgments. Um, but we have to judge with the same mercy, same grace that we wish to be judged with. We also have to realize that we're not the ultimate judge. That's why sometimes we can let go of judging. We can quit judging. We're not the ultimate judge because we know, as Paul says here, it is um, Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. Or as the old creed says, to quicken the dead. The quick was an old English way of saying living. But uh, Jesus will one day ultimately judge the living and the dead, the quick and the dead. So we, we, we have to pass value judgments. We do it with mercy, and we do it knowing we're not the ultimate judge. We're not the best judge even. And we don't have all the facts sometimes to judge. So we need to be very, very gracious and merciful with our judging. Um, particularly in light of the fact that we will be judged one day uh, by Christ. Paul in Romans says, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Paul is reminding Timothy of this. Um, So who is to judge the living and the dead, the quick and the dead? And by his appearing, that's the second coming, Paul never talks very long uh, without bringing up the topic of the second coming of Christ. Um, he's talking here about the final judgment and the second coming. They go together. Uh, the, so he talks about the judging of the living and the dead and by his appearing, the second coming, and his kingdom. So the judgment, final judgment, the return of Christ, and the fulfillment of the kingdom sort of comes together. 
Um, they, they're a package deal at the end of history. So he's reminding Timothy of these things as he, gets, as he continues with his charge. Look at the charge. Verse 2. Preach the word. Um, you know, if I were preaching an ordination sermon, this would probably be the text I would use. These first eight verses of First uh, Timothy chapter 4, where Paul is telling Timothy, preach the word. You know, I, as you know, I served as a district superintendent, which was the greatest continuing education experience of my life. You know, where I, you know, I, I led 181 clergy and had 167 churches kind of under my superintendency. So every Sunday, um, I was in multiple churches because a lot of churches, have, even small churches now, have multiple services. So I could get two, sometimes three services in on Sunday morning. And it was an amazing continuing education experience. And uh, heard a lot of preaching, heard a lot of preachers, heard a lot of music too, by the way, good and not quite so good, but, um, and preaching sort of categorized the same way, um, heard a lot of preaching, you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm disturbed by how many preachers get confused about what it is they're called to do. Some preachers are better storytellers and comedians uh, than they are preachers of the word. Um, I'm not a comedian. I'm not a storyteller. Uh, I, I don't do either well, and I'll leave those tasks to somebody else. But uh, um, some preachers think that's their calling. But what is more disturbing than that to me is some congregations want that. Um, I talk to so many groups, I always run the risk of repeating myself, but I'll repeat myself because this is an interesting story. I was sitting in a very prominent church in the triad. Um, I was listening to a very prominent preacher that I have great regard for. I love him, particularly as a human being. And my wife's sitting there beside me. I probably told you the story. My wife's sitting there beside me, and, and she's keeping count, you know, one, on her bulletin, one, two, three, four, five, six. Well, finally... She was way past 10, and I looked at her and said, what are you doing? She said, I'm counting the number of stories. Thirteen stories that preacher used. Jesus didn't get to make an appearance hardly. Scripture didn't have much of a role, but 13 stories in one 20-minute sermon. Now, because she was keeping count, because she doesn't like that, and she knows how I feel about that. I love stories. I love storytelling. Jesus did some of that, but he did it for a particular purpose. Um, but some preachers, you know, they think they're Garrison Keeler, and some congregations, they think that's what they want. Anyway, so she's keeping count, and so, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm sitting there. But I'll never forget, I left there, and I went to a, a, a restaurant with some people from that church. Um, and while I was there, I was at the, um, at the buffet, and there were some other members of the church there, and one of the members of the church came up to me, and, and I really liked positive people, usually. I, I love positive people. I'm very positive most of the time. This, this person walked up to me and said, wasn't that a great sermon this morning? And I, I didn't, I'm not sure how I answered that. Um, not sure. It's fine for what it was. I, I wouldn't have dignified it with the use of the word sermon. Uh, it didn't belong behind the sacred desk. That's what the old preachers used to call pulpits. It didn't belong behind the sacred desk. But one of the, you know, um, um, you know if, there's, if there's confusion in the pulpit, 
there's a fog in the pews. You know, Paul's going to start talking about sound doctrine in a moment. Well, if there's confusion in the pulpit about that, there's going to be confusion in the pews about that. So, um, yeah, if I was preaching an ordination sermon, this would be the text I use. Preach the Word. Because you can preach a whole lot of stuff. You can preach contemporary events. And, you know, you can make reference to things, and you need to take the Scripture and allow it to be applied to today. But, uh, and it was Karl Barth who famously said, great theologian Karl Barth, who famously said, you know, you should preach with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, and you, you'd need to build the bridge. But, you know, I, I run across some preachers that have the newspaper with the Bible. I don't know where it's at. Uh, as soon as they read their text, the Bible is irrelevant from that point on in what they're saying. But, um, uh, you know, there's a lot you can preach. Paul is very specific here at the Timothy. Preach the Word. You know, um, if you look at our Jewish heritage, you know, a big part of the Jewish synagogue service is bringing the Torah, the Torah scrolls, the Bible scrolls out of the tabernacle. You know, they parade them through. If you ever attend a synagogue worship, they parade them through the synagogue. And the, the, the people there will, will kiss the Torah scroll, uh, the, the Bible. They'll kiss the Torah scroll or they'll kiss their prayer shawl and touch the scroll with it. But, you know, the, the, the arrival of the scriptures to the Bema. You know, they don't really have a pulpit. They have a kind of a bame, a big platform. That's where they take the Torah scrolls. They roll it out. But, the, you know, the taking the Torah scroll out of the tabernacle, parading it through the synagogue, then unrolling it there on the bama seat so that the rabbi can teach is a, is a big part. But by the time you go through that part of the worship, you know something really important is about to come. You know something really important about the Bible is about to come. Um, that's our heritage. Uh, that's also why... Uh, if you go to synagogue service on Shabbat morning, on, on Saturday morning, uh, they're usually about three hours long. Um, a lot of scripture reading, a lot of scripture exposition. Um, we, we are heirs of the synagogue service. We Christians developed our worship on the synagogue service. That's why the reading proclamation of Scripture is central to Christian worship because it comes out of the synagogue service. Anyway, so Paul is being a very good Jew here when he says to Timothy, preach the Word. You know, and I'm glad he's very succinct at this point. Preach the Word. There's been a few times when I was this superintendent, I wanted to write that on an offering envelope and put it in the offering plate as it went up. You know, preach the Word. Anyway, preach the Word, and then notice the advice he gives about preaching the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. That means preach the Word always. When it's convenient, when it's not convenient. When it wants to be heard, when it doesn't want to be heard. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Um, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Um, I, I used to say everybody needed... Robert Schuller about once every six weeks. Power, positive thinking, and all that. You know, I, there's, a, there's a role for power, positive thinking. There's a role for, um, uh, who's the, the, the contemporary heir? I cannot believe it. His name, this is a Freudian moment. There's a reason why his name just would not stay in my brain. Uh, the, the heir, the modern contemporary heir of uh, Robert Schuller's, who? Joel Osteen, thank you. Have your best life now. You know, I, I'm not completely opposed to that. It's not preaching. And everybody needs 
a little of that about once every six weeks, like going to a therapist. You need that about once every six weeks or once every four weeks. I'm not opposed to that um, because I'm a very positive person by nature. It's just not preaching. You know, it has nothing to do usually with reproving, rebuking, or exhorting. You know, people just want to be told how to have their best life now. Um, which there's some kind of patently unchristian, by the way, about that being your aim. Just think about that one a while. But any, that's, of course, the title of one of his books, if you don't realize that. But anyway, you, you preach the word always, and in the process that you will be reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. Um, you know, most people sitting in pews love it when they love it when the preacher steps on toes, just not theirs. Um, they love it when you're stepping on other people's toes. Um, but yeah, if you step on their toes to the extent that you're really doing that and you've irritated some sacred cow in their life, yeah, that, they, you don't get the compliment out at the back door. But um, Paul knew if you preach the Scripture, you're going to reprove, rebuke, and, and exhort. Um, that's not what Americans want. Americans want all their greed um, baptized with some spiritual language and be told that everything you want is somehow spiritually appropriate. Um, can't do that in the Jewish Christian tradition. Well, you can do it, but you're not being faithful to Jewish Christian tradition. But now the next thing he says here, I almost wish he didn't say, preach the word always, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with patience. And notice he doesn't just say with patience. I wish, as I heard a Scottish preacher say one time, I wish he would have said, with a wee bit of patience. <laughs> but he says, with complete or perfect patience. Um, you know, and that same Scottish preacher I heard preaching one time, he was near the end of his active preaching ministry. We, we die preaching, but he was in, in the end of his active ministry. But anyway, and he was asked, what was your biggest regret from, your, from looking back over the course of your ministry, in particular early years, and he said, I wasn't patient enough with my people. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, I just want to tell you the truth of God, and then you get it all right by this time tomorrow. And then, But when I'm, when I'm in that mood, I forget I'm not going to get it right by this time tomorrow. And that's why we have to keep reminding, keep preaching the Word, keep laying it out there. Because human nature being what it is, uh, yeah, we're a work in progress. Um, so that's why Paul ends this charge to Timothy. Preach the word always, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And I've had preachers look at me and say, I'm not a teacher. And that bothers me. By the way, it bothered John Wesley a great deal too. Uh, there is a... Um, there is a compound word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 4, pastor-teacher, hyphenated. Uh, um, preaching should always have a teaching component to it because we're teaching the faith. Uh, we are the resident theologian. You know, I, I will be, I'll have to be answerable one day. Bible teaches me this. I will have to answer one day for your heresies, for your false teachings. You know, I, I will bear some responsibility if, if you have false doctrine. So um, that's, why, that's why James, by the way, says many of us should not become teachers. 
Because once you teach the faith, you start bearing some responsibility for particularly your flock. By the the way, the word pastor comes from the Latin word for um, shepherd. So, yeah, once you become a shepherd, you bear responsibility for your flock. And again, I, I have concerns about some of the preachers out there who don't even seem to be trying to preach the word. Um, anyway, so uh, you got to teach, but you got to do all this with patience. Verse 3, let's wrap it up um, for today. For the time is coming. Oh, this time has come. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions, who tell them what they want, who will not allow the Bible to get in the way of what they want, suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth. The article is there in the Greek, the truth. Turn away from the truth because they prefer their truth, as if there is such a thing. Uh, they will they they will um, uh, they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's the alternative to sound doctrine. Verse five, and this is where we'll finish at. Verse five. As for you, Timothy, always be um, sober-minded. You know, keep your head in all circumstances. Always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. You know, I've had some preachers tell me they don't think they're evangelists either. Well, you may not have the gift of evangelism that Billy Graham has, but all of us have to do the work of the evangelist. We all have to be introducing people to Jesus. Now, we may not have the... Just like we, we all pray, we all may not have the gift of intercession. Some people have the gift of intercession. We all pray for people to be healed. Some people have the gift of healing. Um, we all should be sharing Christ. Some people have the gift of evangelism. Billy Graham could read the phone book and people come to Christ. Um, that's the gift of evangelism. But even though you, you may not think you have the gift of evangelism, you still have to do the work of the evangelist. You know, it, 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 it has always grieved me as to how many Christians have never um, had the joy of leading someone to Christ. But we all need to do the work of an evangelist. We can't just leave that work to the professionals. And then he says to Timothy, sort of summarizing all of this, fulfill your ministry. And again, he's talking to Timothy. So here he means specifically to Timothy. Timothy, fulfill your ministry, the ministry to which you've been called. Um, One thing you need to remember about the word word minister, um, and I've always been grateful that in, in my tradition, United Methodist or Methodist tradition, but this is not unique to us. The Bible teaches this. Our, our book of discipline says, do not reserve the word minister for the ordained. You know, I, I, it makes me nervous when people call me a minister. You can call me pastor, priest, father, rabbi. If you call me minister, you can do that as long as you understand you, you, ha, you, ha, you have the same term applied to you. We are all, you're, our, everybody's baptism is ordination to the ministry of the laity. We all have our ministries. We all are ministers of Christ. So it's only about 100 years ago that Christians started, and I think you can figure out the reasons for it, Christians started taking the word minister and applying it to the, those ordained to word and sacrament, uh, to the elders or whoever in the body. Um, we're all called to be ministers. 
Um, that's why, yeah, you need to fulfill your ministry. We all have different ministries, but you have a ministry. Um, you need to be able to tell everybody in this room what your ministry is. And the New Testament gives lots of options, lots of options. But you, you have a ministry, and you spend your life living into that ministry. You, you spend your life fulfilling that ministry. Your call to ministry, I don't think, ever changes. The form your ministry takes changes. I will reinvent myself in retirement one of these days, but I will still be a minister. Um, we all are called to ministry. So when you hear Paul say to Timothy, fulfill your ministry, don't just think you're off the hook. Uh, because the, the Christian faith, we're, we are all priests. We're a kingdom of priests, the Bible declares. Martin Luther, when he was reminding the church of some things, he reminded people that core to this book is the, our teaching about the priesthood of all believers. We're all priests to each other. We're all minister, in ministry. So, um, you know, you, you need to continue uh, contemplating your ministry. You need to continue every day thinking, you know, what, am I fulfilling my ministry? And um, God is very creative as to uh, the different forms ministry can take. But everything we do in life should somehow fulfill that ministry. Whatever it is, God, God has a role for each one of us here in this world. And He's left us here for a purpose. He didn't, he didn't just redeem us and take us to heaven. He redeemed us and left us here for a purpose. You know, when I die and I face my final judgment, you know, he's not going to say, why weren't you more like Billy Graham? He's going to say, why weren't you more like I wanted you to be? We all have a particular call in life. And we all have a particular ministry in life. And um, I, I know well what it means to run away from your calling. Now, you know, you need to keep figuring out what your call is. And I'll close with this. You need to keep figuring out what your call is. Now, what's exciting about that is twofold. When you figure out what your calling is, you, you've got to do it. When you figure out your calling, you can't say, I'm not equipped, because if God's called you to it, He'll equip you for it. The equipping for it's not your responsibility. Um, when you're when you, when, you, when you keep reminding yourself what your calling is, you have to fulfill it. Now, part of what excites me about that is, you know, when you know what your calling is, you know what you're not called to. You know, I have no problem saying no to someone who thinks I'm called to keep in the nursery. <laughs> you know, I, 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 don't, I don't have the least bit of guilt to say no to that. I don't have the least bit of guilt saying no to seeing the solo. Because um, that's not my calling. But when we know what our calling is, yeah, then I don't have the option of saying, you know, give me a week off, God. I don't have that option. And you don't either. You don't either. So um, that's probably enough for today.